Night Talk for Dublin with Head and Shoulders, giving you the confidence to hang up your hang-ups on 98FM. The word pedophilia, it can strike fear into the very souls of people and, you know, cause bile in the mm. back of people's throats. But the fact is, there are pedophiles in the world, but what to do about it? And do you think if we understand pedophiles more, that we could deal with it in a much more constructive way. Well, that's what people are thinking. And we're wondering, do you think paedophilia could be a sexual orientation? 53981. We're joined right now by Dr. James Cantor, who's Senior Scientist at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health and Associate Professor at University of Toronto's Faculty of Medicine. Dr. Cantor, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Now, when it comes to paedophilia, obviously it's a word that really scares people. But what does the scientific community, is there a consensus about what cause, is there a cause for it? Uh, I think right now we're probably in the middle of a, um, uh, renaissance isn't the word, but in the middle of a shift, really for a very, very long time, really ever since Freud in the early 20th century, people believed in what was called the abused abuser hypothesis, Mm. that somehow being uh, the victim of child molestation made somebody into a pedophile in, uh, in adulthood kind of in a like-makes-like kind of way. Uh, But there was never really any solid evidence for it. What we have uh, now, largely from my lab and also two other teams that uh, are both in Germany, we're finding very substantial differences in brain structure, which is now helping us realize that, uh, uh, that pedophilia probably is what we call, as scientists, a sexual orientation. But I have to say that, you know, with, with big quotes around it, to a scientist, uh, sexual orientation is something that is uh, innate and probably unchangeable, but we shouldn't mistake it uh, at all that there's any association between pedophilia and just plain vanilla, you know, healthy homosexuality. Okay, so this is something that you have been studying for a number of years. Um, tell us about some of the experiments or some of the techniques that you've done to, to study this. Well, we started really very simple. Uh, I work in a, uh, in a facility where we uh, work with people who have committed sex, uh, sex offenses. I have spent their time in jail, and they're being released to parole and, uh, and probation. So as part of that procedure, we do basic psychological assessments of these people so we know best how to help them uh, reintegrate them into society in a healthy way that minimizes any uh, possibility of, uh, of future offenses. And part of that assessment was IQ, education, the basics to a psychologist. Mm. And when we ran the numbers, we started seeing patterns in it. The uh, people who committed offenses against children and people who were sexually interested in children instead of adults had lower IQs. They had less education. They were more likely to be left-handed rather than right-handed. Just all of these subtle clues that there was something going on in the brain. Now, if it were just IQ alone, well, okay, maybe it's just dumb pedophiles are more likely to get arrested. Mm -hmm. But when we started uh, seeing things like handedness, you know, uh, in the population, roughly, you know, 8 to 10% of people are, uh, are left-handed. Uh, uh, and when people are retrained, as the church used to do, it was always retrained away from left-handedness. But the only thing that determines handedness is brain organization. So the only way we could get, and we were seeing like 30, 35% of, uh, uh, of pedophiles being non-right-handed is the technical term. Well, the only way that could be true would be if they, too, had brains that were organized differently and pedophilia was one of the effects, and non-right-handedness was another one of the effects. And so that then made us go to, you know, right to the source. We, I got a researcher grant from the, uh, from the Canadian research agencies. 
uh, and we started collecting brain scans of these people, and sure enough, we found you know uh, widespread differences in the organization of the brain. Um, in relation, I suppose there's a lot of people now who are left-handed and, and feeling very indignant in relation to this and thinking that they're being, um, being worked with. Just for the record, I'm also uh, left-handed. Okay, there we go. It's a purely statistical association. Yeah, you know, exactly. it, it, it's a good clue to a scientist, but we can't make any broad conclusions about <laughs> individual people. Now, in relation to that, do you have, when, you, when you're looking at statistical anomalies, do you know how much, you know, the percentage of population that you think you reckon are paedophiles? Oh, that's a good question. It's very, very difficult to tell uh, because, uh, of course, there's no way to go out and survey people and expect to get any kind of an honest mm. answer when it's something, you know, so criminal and so stigmatized like pedophilia and, uh, and child molestation. Uh, the other part that makes it hard to estimate is not everybody who actually commits a sexual offense against a child actually is a pedophile. There's a difference, and yeah, most people don't realize really? it. Really? Exactly. There's a difference between pedophilia and child molestation. Pedophilia itself, as I say, is kind of like the sexual orientation. It's the genuine underlying sexual interest in children where adults do nothing for them. But especially in a pattern like uh, incest patterns, which are motivated by bizarre family dynamics and, uh, and other things, those are not motivated by pedophilia itself, even though those are the majority of the cases. So just because somebody is a pedophile, they're not necessarily hurting anybody. Uh, there's a phrase, uh, uh, there's an activist in the U.S. named Dan Savage who refers to them as gold star pedophiles. These are people who realize you know, uh, uh, that uh, there's something different with them, and they come into psychologist's offices with, Doc, I got a problem. Yeah. And they have never touched any kid, and those are the ones really that we want to be getting to and to help them stay offense-free. Okay. Which now, on the other side... As I say, not everybody who committed a molestation of a child actually was motivated by, you know, genuine pedophilia. Sometimes it was something else going on. And just in relation to that, because I think that's that's something that certainly the wider public would not even think about. If you think about a child being hurt by an adult, you go, that person is a, a pedophile. pedophile. Mm. So how can you tell that there is a difference and how is there a difference? Uh, it's sometimes, of course, hard to tell. With yeah. some of these people, we have an idea in our mind. We have an image of, uh, of evil incarnate in front of us. Mm -hmm. And, of course, such people exist, but they're thankfully very, very rare. What most of them are are people who are struggling. They know that this is wrong. They know that they shouldn't do it, but they have absolutely no resource to help them manage you know, something as powerful as a male sex drive. Now, if we ask somebody else, you know, through no choice of your own, you have to live celibate, and you can't so much as tell a soul, mm. you know, I, I couldn't wish a worse curse on someone. So even though we want to be supporting them and helping them, you know, live a celibate life, mm -hmm. we've, we've instead made it impossible for them to come in and get the help for it. Okay, so you actually work with people who have been convicted of sex offences. Um what, what, I mean, what's that like? I mean, do these people want to be helped? Do they understand what you're trying to do? I mean, or would they think that you're trying to, I suppose, justify their actions in some way as well? No, uh, certainly they don't think that I'm trying to uh, justify their behavior. Uh, but I can certainly understand why somebody would uh, confuse trying to understand a situation with condoning the, mm. the situation. But, of course, the only way to engage someone in a therapeutic conversation is to start where they are and then, you know, help them untangle the way they see the world until it's a bit more, uh, more realistic. 
So some of them are very resistant, but the majority of them, they come in, they know that they did something wrong, and they want to, uh, to get better. They want to, uh, to reintegrate. And those are really the, uh, the greatest, uh, uh, those are my greatest hope for the ones who have already committed an offense mm. and are, uh, are coming into uh, our offices. But my greatest hope really is if it uh, was with prevention. Right. If we can get to these people before they commit the, uh, their first offense, then never mind, you know, people still talk about putting these people in jail and keeping them there forever to prevent a second offense, which is logical. But if we can prevent the first offense, we're doing much, much more good. In relation to preventing the first offence, you've talking about, spoken about Gold Star paedophiles. Indeed, I know there's a group in America called Virtuous paedophiles who are people yes. who have a sexual attraction to children but have never, ever acted upon it. So do people who, ha- who would be called paedophiles um, but have never acted on, do they come to you to, to, to speak about their urges? Mostly I hear from them over the internet. Uh, we have uh, uh, in uh, Canada and in you know most parts of the Western world mandatory reporting laws. Yeah. Uh, the idea they started in the 1980s and 90s that if a, a pedophile or there's some situation which might put a child at risk, we are required in our regulations to report it to the authorities. The idea, of course, was to you know kind of police society and have these have the kids taken away from these people or have these people taken out of society. But if you just think that one step further, you realize. Well, they know that that's the law, so they just don't come in in the first place. So yeah. it kind of cuts itself off as a, uh, as a tactic. It's pushing them underground, really. Yeah. Uh, exactly. So the only thing we've really done is to blind ourselves and to remove our own opportunity to help. We need to go back to when the, uh, uh, the therapeutic relationship between doctor and patient or psychologist and patient was the same, uh, pretty much the same as lawyer and client. Okay, um, 53981 for 20 cent, or you can give us a call on this 185022-9898. We're talking about paedophilia and whether or not um, it is actually a sexual orientation. Um, what about women when it comes to paedophilia? I mean, you hear about men, and, and it seems to be mostly men, but um, do, have you dealt with many women in your research? Uh, uh, yeah, yes and no. There exist such cases, but they're quite a puzzle. Women are not like men, it turns out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for, when it comes to sexual atypicalities, that's where men and women are even more different. Uh, we're not even sure that pedophilia does exist in women. Now, again, I need to make sure that, uh, to emphasize the difference between pedophilia and child molestation. Mm-hmm. There is, and they're very rare, but they exist. There are examples of women who commit child molestation. But it seems to be motivated very, very differently from when uh, a male pedophile does it. When there's a, a woman involved sexually with a child, there's very often a man someplace else in the picture. Yeah. She's often doing it, you know, to make him happy. And she's kind of, she has no ego strength of her own. Either she's bullied or she has some, you know, deep psychological need to please him no matter what. So even though there are some women involved in some of these stories, she's often not the initiator of them, but they do exist. And that would be the, the uh, certainly a case that was over here with Ian Watkins, the Lost Prophets frontman, who was accused of a lot of um, child molestation and, and pedophilic charges. It was women who were bringing him these children to please him. But mm-hmm. if we're looking at it... Um, then if we're looking at it as something that is a biological imperative, that it is a sexual orientation... It, could it be true that it could skip women? Like, does that make it less believable that it can be a sexual orientation? 
No, I don't think so. If there's anything really that separates, you know, the biological brain of a male and the biological uh, uh, brain of a uh, uh, of a woman, it really is in sexual behavior. Mm. Uh, it's very interesting, and evolutionary scientists, evolution scientists, uh, still uh, still look at this. The female reproductive system has to look has to be very very well attuned to what the best time is to give birth. Because, of course, you know, it requires such enormous resources on the woman's body. For men, where it's a very, very short sexual interaction uh, between them, it's very easy for, uh, again, in biological evolutionary times, it was very easy for a male not to participate any further in, in. the upbringing of the, uh, of the child. Mm-hmm. So because they exist in different reproductive environments, it makes sense that they would develop different uh, uh, reproductive strategies and as part of that, when something goes wrong with the system, they get different problems coming out of it. You've been listening to a 98FM podcast. Download more at 98FM.com.